You're listening to an audio sermon from Redemption Church in Olds, Alberta. It is our prayer that through this ministry, we will see lost people saved, saved people matured, and mature people multiplied all to the glory of God. For more information about our church, or to let us know how we can be praying for you, visit us online at www.redemptionolds.com or send us an email at info at redemptionolds.com. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for this opportunity to preach and share your word. I just ask that my words be your words and my thoughts be your thoughts. I just ask for the presence and the empowerment of the Holy Spirit so that we may understand your word fully and grasp it completely. And I pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Okay, so Corey opened up the series two weeks ago with some background information. And last week, Brian did an excellent job explaining the difference between God's wisdom and man's wisdom. This morning, I would really like to expand upon what Brian touched on in his sermon, the difference between God's divine wisdom and man's extremely limited wisdom. This morning, I'm going to have us look at Solomon a little closer and help us to try and understand where Solomon was spiritually and mentally when he wrote the book of Ecclesiastes. We have to back up a little and take a few minutes to look at the author of this book. How is it that the same man who was responsible for some of Psalms and much of Proverbs is now seemingly writing verses that are basically saying, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die? There's a bit, it seems on the surface there's a bit of inconsistency there. So first we're going to do some background. We're going to talk about Solomon's mindset. Now, I'm no psychologist, But I wonder if Solomon had a few issues regarding his father, David. By all measures, this was a dysfunctional family, David's family. In the first two chapters of Ecclesiastes, Solomon states three times that he was greater than all others over Jerusalem in one way or another. That speaks to me a little bit about insecurity. No doubt it would have been difficult living in the shadow of such a king as David, And I think we even see evidence of the same thing in our current prime minister and the relationship between his father. Now, onto the spiritual side of Solomon. He started out well in his walk with Yahweh. Come with me to the book of 1 Kings, and we're going to get some background information on Solomon. 1 Kings chapter 3. 1 Kings 3, chapter 3, verse 3 states, Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statues of David his father, only he sacrificed and made offerings at the high places. So we see Solomon started out strong. Pay attention to that word, Lord. Do you remember what that signifies? L-O-R-D in all caps. It's the English version of the tetragram, Yahweh, or Y-H-W-H in Hebrew. Yahweh is the personal name of God, the Father of Jesus Christ. Hang on to that fact, fact, and I'm going to come back to it in a couple of minutes. I'm going to make various references here in 1 Kings. We're not going to have time to read all the verses in the chapters. My advice is a little bit of homework. If you get a chance, read 1 Kings chapters 3 to 11, and that'll give you a full background on Solomon. So in 1 Kings 3, verse 5, We read, at Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and God said, ask 
what I shall give you. And Solomon said, you have shown great and steadfast love for, to your servant David, my father, because he walked before you in faithfulness, in righteousness, and in uprightness of heart toward you. And you have kept for him this great and steadfast love and have given him a son to sit on his throne this day. And now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of David, my father, although I am but a little child. I do not know how to go out or come in. And your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil, for who is able to govern this your great people? It pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this, and because God said to him, because you have asked this, and have not asked for yourself long life, or riches, or the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right, behold, I now do according to your word. Behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind, so that none like you has been before you, and none like you shall arise after you. I give you also what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that no other king shall compare with you all your days. So Yahweh granted Solomon discernment for use in administering justice, and Yahweh grants to Solomon what he asked for, wisdom to rule over Israel with. Solomon was actually blessed Twice in his life he was visited by Yahweh in visions. But look at in verse 14. The promise from Yahweh is conditional, however. Verse 14. And if you will walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and my commandments as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. If you walk in my ways. Solomon was required to walk in the ways of Yahweh and to keep his commandments. Solomon didn't get a pass just because he was king and had to form alliances with surrounding kingdoms. Forming these alliances, usually through marriage and accumulating horses and chariots, meant the king was depending on his own wisdom and might. He was not depending on Yahweh to protect Israel. Solomon was expected to follow Yahweh and his statues and laws. But things are not as they seem with Solomon and Yahweh, however. Here in this verse, Solomon was already married to Pharaoh's daughter and when he was blessed with this wisdom. Another hint is in 1 Kings chapter 7. We won't read it, but I'll just describe it. We see in 1 Kings 7, Solomon, it says that Solomon built his palace first, then began to rebuild the temple. Now, 2 Chronicles is a little more kind. 2 Chronicles has the same, the same instance, but it makes it sound like Solomon's building both the temple and his palace at the same time. And that's possible because if you've ever worked with a contractor, sometimes they have multiple jobs going at the same time. But here in 1 Kings, it reads like Solomon completed his palace first, then he went on to rebuild the temple. So in 1 Kings chapter 8, let's turn there. 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 22 Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands towards heaven. 
where I've just dropped us down into, this is where Solomon's dedicating the temple to the Lord, okay? So he's praying before, the dedic- he's praying before Yahweh at the de- dedication of the rebuilt temple. And he said, O Lord, God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or, or on earth beneath, keeping covenant and showing steadfast love to your servants who walk before you with all their heart. So Solomon goes on, and he's got a very long uh, prayer here, and one could read Solomon's prayer as if he was challenging Yahweh, almost daring him not to honor his promises. The tone in this passage, I'll admit, it, it is difficult to determine strictly from the text, and I may be showing a little bit of bias here in my reading, but Yahweh reminds Solomon that his blessings to Solomon were conditional. Look at 1 Kings chapter 9, 1 Kings chapter 9, verse 6. So this is after Solomon has completed the prayer, he's rededicated the temple to Yahweh, and in 1 Kings 9, 6, he says, Yahweh is now talking to Solomon, but if you turn aside from following me, you or your children, and do not keep my commandments and my statues that I have set before you, but go and serve other gods and worship then, then I will cut off Israel from the land that I've given them. And the house that I've consecrated for my name I will cast out of my sight, and Israel will become, will become a proverb and a byword among all peoples. And this house will become a heap of ruins. Everyone passing by it will be astonished and will hiss, and they will say, why has the Lord done this to this land and to this house? Then they will say, because they abandoned the Lord their God who brought their fathers out of the land of Egypt and laid hold on other gods and worshipped them and served them. Therefore, the Lord has brought all this disaster on them. So now we're seeing Solomon starting to turn from Yahweh. Uh, And we really start to see the wheels coming off the relationship between Solomon and Yahweh. We'll turn to 1 Kings 11, 1 and 2. This is where it starts to go bad for Solomon. 1 Kings 11, verses 1 and 2. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women, from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they return away your heart after their gods. Solomon clung to those. Solomon clung to these in love. And that's dropped down to verse 4. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart away after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of, his, oh, sorry, as was the heart of David his father. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not wholly follow the Lord as David his father had done. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites on the mountain east of Jerusalem. And so he did for all his foreign wives who made offerings and sacrificed to their gods. So here it is in the latter part of Solomon's life. 
He's setting up all these other places of offering and all these temples to, to the gods that his wives, his foreign wives, were worshiping. Okay, you guys go back to Ecclesiastes chapter 2. I'm going to read a couple of uh, Proverbs, and then I'll join you there. So now let's look at Solomon's wisdom. The following information regarding the definitions of wisdom comes from the Browns Driver Briggs Hebrew and English Lexicon, also known as the BDB. In order to fully understand some text, it is very helpful to look at the original language and culture. So the Hebrew word for wisdom here is kwakma. It's spelled C-H-O-K-M-A. And the first classification of this word for wisdom in the BDB is the wisdom that is used in administration, as in running a business or running a kingdom or running a project. It also describes wisdom as cleverness and shrewdness especially when making earthly decision-making. The BDB goes on to break down wisdom in another manner, when wisdom is used in ethical or religious matters. The first of this type in religious matters is wisdom as an attribute of God. Proverbs 3.19 says, The Lord by wisdom founded the earth. By understanding, he established the heavens. So wisdom is an attribute of God. It's not just something that God has, it's what he is. God is wisdom. So the next definition of wisdom used in religious context is divine wisdom personified. That's wisdom as the Holy Spirit. Proverbs 9.1 says, Wisdom has built her house, she has hewn her seven pillars. In Proverbs, wisdom is personified using the feminine pronouns. <clears throat> this is not to be taken literally. It is a figure of speech called personification. It is a literary device used in poetry to better convey a concept. I'm not saying the Holy Spirit is female, okay? What I am saying is Proverbs, a book of poetry, uses a literary device called personification to turn to wisdom. The concept of knowledge or gained experience into a person using feminine pronouns to describe it. Here's a real fast example of personification. The biblical record of Cain and Abel in the Garden of Eden. Cain murders his brother Abel, and, and God says to Cain, your brother's blood cries out from the soil. Can spilt blood cry out? No. Does it make any sound? No. But God claiming that Abel's blood was crying out was a use of the literary device of personification. So to recap, the Holy Spirit is not female, as some cults claim. The feminine personification is used as a literary device in the poetry book of Proverbs. I don't want you guys saying to Pastor John when he comes back, Paul was up teaching us that the Holy Spirit's a girl, okay? That's not what I'm saying, so just to be clear. So the third classification of ethical and religious wisdom is the wisdom of man. This is where man relies strictly on his own wisdom in the understanding and teaching of lessons from Yahweh. This is also when we try to live a life based on our own wants, our own desires, and following our own rules, not living according to God's statutes and commandments. As life lived under the sun, S-U-N, if you will, 
This is where most of the references to Ecclesiastes in the Browns, Driver, Briggs are listed. What the listing of these verses tells us is when ethical or religious examples are used by Solomon's wisdom, they are attributed as being only man's wisdom. Okay, let me repeat that. What the listing of all these verses of Ecclesiastes in this Hebrew-English lexicon, what it's telling us is whenever we see the use of the word wisdom in Ecclesiastes, it's examples of Solomon's wisdom that are being only attributed to his manly wisdom. So by studying carefully the original Hebrew words used in the book of Ecclesiastes, we can clearly see that the author is conveying the thought that Solomon was relying on his own wisdom. Yet he used his God-given wisdom to make decisions. But they were made from the perspective of one who has walked away from Yahweh. Brian did an excellent job laying out the differences between God's wisdom and man's wisdom last week. And if you weren't here, I really encourage you to, uh, to listen or watch his sermon online to get more details on those differences. So Solomon was wise, but he was never described as a great theologian. For example, when Samuel anointed David, Solomon's father as a young boy, in, in uh, Jesse, David's father's house, when Samuel was following the Lord's instructions to find a new king. 1 Samuel 16, 13 records, from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came powerfully on David. After, Solomon, or sorry, after Samuel anointed David's head with oil, the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. Nowhere in 1 Kings does it record the spirit of the Lord coming upon Solomon. Okay? Also, Solomon is not listed in chapter 11 of, of Hebrews. That chapter is commonly known as the Faith Hall of Fame. Um, David's listed there, despite of all his faults, but it does not list Solomon. Even though Solomon assured us three times that in the first two chapters of Ecclesiastes that he was greater than anyone else who had ruled over Jerusalem. So God gave Solomon wisdom for administering a, a kingdom, discernment for delivering judgment and justice, and God gave him skills for building so that he would rebuild the temple. God used Solomon to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem so that the sacrificial system could be reinstituted. Then Yahweh used that system to point forward to Christ and what Christ would do on the cross to bring an end to that system. In Hebrews chapter 10, the author of Hebrews attributes Jesus as quoting Psalm 40 verses 6 to 8 saying that Yahweh did not desire sacrifices and burnt offerings and that he did not take pleasures in burnt and sin offerings. So then God destroyed the temple as a memorial to the judgment on Solomon. Remember what we, the warning that Yahweh gave Solomon in, in 1 Kings 9. So he passed he passed judgment on Solomon, on his heirs, and ultimately to anyone who walks away from Yahweh to worship other gods. God then brought an end to the sacrifices performed there. This house will become a heap of ruins, 1 Kings 9.8. And that's exactly what happened in 70 AD when the future Roman emperor Titus led the Roman army on Jerusalem. So one final point about Solomon and his relationship with Yahweh. Remember when we were reading in 1 Kings 3.3 and I pointed out the, the tetragram, the word LORD in all caps, L-O-R-D? In the book of Ecclesiastes, 
God is mentioned 36 times. Each time God is mentioned, the Hebrew word used is Elohim. Now, it is true that Elohim can be used to refer to the one true God of Israel, but when that happens in the Old Testament, usually we see the tetragram. So our English Bibles usually read it as Lord God. It is also true that the word Elohim is used to denote a plurality of gods, pagan gods, or what we Christians would call false gods. Here's the point. The, the name Yahweh does not appear at all in Ecclesiastes. Okay? For homework after the service, go home and read through Ecclesiastes and see if you can find the word L-O-R-D, all in caps. See if you can find Lord mentioned even once. It is for this very reason that I have a bit of an issue with the way that some of our Bibles translate the Hebrew word koholet into preacher. Koholet is actually the Hebrew name of this book. We translate it, we get our name um, from Ecclesiastes is the Greek definition of the word koholet from Hebrew. It's a direct translation. I know I'm getting kind of geeky here, but there's a point to it, I promise. So, Ecclesiastes is a literal translation of Kohlebit. It is not a proper noun. It's more of a nickname. It means one who assembles or the assembler. A preacher is one who assembles to preach the word of God. As a matter of fact, in Bible college and seminary, ecclesiology is the study on what it means to be a church because we gather together to worship and to be the body. However, a teacher is also one who gathers. Since we've discovered the absence of Yahweh in this book, I think that the NIV and others get it a bit more accurately when they use the word teacher in their translations. So hear me, just to recap, hear me when I say this, I'm not saying we shouldn't study this book. I'm not saying that it doesn't contain lessons that we as Christians can learn from. What I am saying is that it can be a, a difficult and somewhat tricky to book and to understand if we neglect a few important ground rules and interpretive facts. Why spend so much time on this? I'm not trying to diminish Solomon in any way. He was a wise king. His wisdom has been described as man's wisdom, not godly wisdom, despite coming as an answer to prayer from God. I'm not trying to be a fancy pants and bore us with Hebrew and Greek lessons. I'm trying to get across the importance of understanding what the text said in the original language so that we can bring, it, it bring its meaning forward to today. I want us to develop and use discernment while we preach and study through Ecclesiastes. All right, so that was Solomon in his mindset. Okay, all of that having been said, I think we have a firm grasp on the author. Let's establish two other interpretive keys that will help us unlock the meaning of this book. A bumper video that we play before each sermon touches on the word hevel. Uh, it's spelt with a B, but it's pronounced with a V. So while it is true that the literal translation is smoke or vapor, there is a more full and complete meaning when the word is understood from a metaphorical point of view. Our English language Bibles usually translate the word as vanity or meaningless. That's what you're going to find in, in your Bibles. But in the translation process, it is difficult sometimes to put the full concept that the original language is trying to convey into one word. So hevel has a metaphorical meaning of something that is difficult to grab hold of, something that is fleeting, 
like youth or happiness or even life itself. We can't hold on to youth, right? We can't be 16 forever. It can also be something that is impossible to grasp, like the meaning of life, values, or our worldview and our value system. We all have a worldview or a value system that we use to guide us through life. Everything from how we do church, how we raise our children, how we treat work, how we treat our spouses, families, and friends is all governed by our worldview. Who we think God is or isn't, those ideas and so many more help to make up our worldview. Hang on to that thought, and I'll circle back to that near the end of the sermon. The final key is the phrase, life under the sun, S-U-N. Brian explained this well, but some of you may have been absent last week, so I'll just do a quick recap. Now that we understand where Solomon's mindset was when he authored this book, it makes more sense to read the phrase, under the sun, S-U-N, as meaning a life lived apart from God, a life apart from Yahweh. For us Christians today, it would translate as a life lived apart from Jesus. It's a way of living our lives indistinguishable from society all around us. That, I know what I'm talking about. For the first 40 years of my life, my life was lived under the S-U-N. Now that I'm under the S-O-N, my life is much better, it has meaning, and my life has not been lived in vain. Okay, golly, that was a loss, right? That was just our background. Um, so, can we please get into the text? I'm, I'm glad you asked. Okay, back in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure, enjoy yourself. But behold, this also is vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly, till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. So these first three verses are dealing with some heart issues. The teacher is not testing the concept of pleasure. Pleasure has been around since the beginning. What the teacher is testing is his heart and his reaction to pleasure. Can he truly find meaning in pleasure and in the pleasurable acts themselves? We see he gives himself permission to be indulgent, to enjoy himself. But throughout all of this experiment, he's using his wisdom to guide his heart and to analyze what satisfaction he is finding beyond the pure physical pleasure of these activities. But alas, the, the answer is given right at the beginning of this passage. It was vanity. It was difficult to grasp hold on. While the acts themselves were pleasurable, the pleasure one derives from the acts is difficult to hold on to. That dopamine hit doesn't last. We need another and another and sometimes a stronger hit before we begin to feel the same level of pleasure from the same activity. As anyone struggling with a form of addiction knows, it doesn't matter what your source of pleasure is. Drugs, alcohol, pornography, promiscuity, gambling, they all have the same pattern of a downward spiral. If you find yourself in the midst of a hold of these addictions on your life, similar patterns will emerge. 
Perhaps you start off with a beer or two on the weekend. Next, maybe you need a midweek bump to get you to the weekend. Then it's a nightly thing to unwind after a tough day, right? And on the weekends, I mean, a fellow's got to let loose to get ready to get back to the ground on, grind on Monday. And then next, maybe it's a quick beer at lunch. It's a hot day. It's a nice day. It's a patio day. Insert whatever excuse here day. Then you decide beers for pansies or drinking this much beer is getting too expensive. It's now whiskey weekends. Maybe a little vodka during the week. Can't have the boss smelling alcohol on your breath. And before you know it, your pleasure, your hobby, has its hook so deep into you, it's making a mess of your life, and now you are its slave. The same pattern applies to other addictions. I mentioned drugs. Start with weed, end with meth. Porn. Start with when the wife's not feeling well, end with more time with the screen than with your wife. Gambling starts with, I have an extra 20 bucks, let's go have some fun with it. And ends with spending the rent or the mortgage money. (laughs) Growing up with addictive people, I have seen these patterns play out time and time again in my family members. It really doesn't matter what we are doing in our search for pleasure and meaning in life. Some are sins and therefore need to be avoided at all costs. But some can be enjoyed in moderation due to the liberty we enjoy in Christ. But if we are under the sun, S-U-N, and living living a life apart from God by searching for fulfillment in these pleasures, then we need to step back and examine our lives. Christians are not immune to these struggles. If this is you, or if you suspect it is, I ask that you start prayerfully examining your behavior. Ask the Lord to reveal if this is an issue in your life. Has it become a crutch for you? An idol? Is it something that is coming between you and your walk with Jesus? If this might be you, talk to a brother or sister in Christ and seek some counsel. Ask for help and accountability in your life. Seek Christian-based counseling and help. Find a recovery group to help you identify areas of your life where you have lost control and learn strategies on how to handle these issues so that you can live a life that is God-honoring and one that brings Him glory. But pleasure is not the only area of danger for us. Work can also become an obsession, a place for misdirected value-seeking. Last weekend, I had a chance to teach some of God's wisdom at a father and son retreat at Camp Evergreen. And this next part is, is part of one of the talks that I gave there. Uh, because, and this is, I'm going to direct this to the men. Because men, we are susceptible to this. When we meet other, when we meet someone new, other men, what's one of the first things that we do? What do you do for a living? Right? That's what, that's what, we, what do you do? Even just that short phrase, We know what they mean. What do you do? We introduce ourselves. Hi, I'm Bob. I'm a plumber. I'm Joe, the builder. I'm Dave, an entrepreneur. Man, how many times have you introduced yourself to another guy as, I'm Paul, a Christ follower? It's just not done in Western society, right? Now, I'm not advocating that what you do at your next business conference is you walk around introducing yourself like that. I'm not saying that. It's just not seen as proper business etiquette in our society. But it does speak to the areas that we turn to in order to help us determine our value as a person in this world. 
Would our worldview be different and our walk with Christ be closer if we thought of ourselves as Christians first? What if we drew our identity from Christ rather from our work or our, or our vocation? People often do what the teacher is doing here in these verses. We often brag about what we do or what we have accomplished to establish our worth in someone else's eyes and sometimes in our own eyes. Oftentimes to resort to, I have my own business or I built this or I worked on that. Even in Christian circles, we are not immune to this. When someone new comes into our midst, we often want to hear their conversion story or when they were baptized or what Bible college they attend. Sometimes we have to hear all this background stuff before we consider them a real Christian. But as a Christian, we should look at anyone standing in front of us as another being that was created in God's image. And as such, they are worthy of respect as an image bearer of God. Full stop. The fact that they have been created by God means that they are worthy of our respect. If they don't yet know Jesus, we need to introduce them to him. As an image bearer of God, they were created with a longing inside them to connect with their maker. People use these other pursuits in an attempt to fill that void in their lives or to act as a distraction so that they won't have to consider the emptiness in their lives. This lack of meaning that they have, this lack of purposefulness in their days. So instead, they turn to self-improvement, or home improvement, or community improvement. Sometimes they'll turn to classes, or programs, or hobbies, or, or, or. The list is endless. All in an attempt to avoid the real issue in their lives, a life lived apart from God. Again, I'm not saying any of these things in and of themselves are evil or should be avoided. What I am suggesting is what the text is telling us. If we look to these things for fulfillment apart from Christ, they will be as filling as a bucket full of vapor. They will be as easy to hang on to as a hurricane. And oftentimes they will cause the same level of pain and destruction in our lives. The teacher is warning us that searching for our meaning, our value, our sense of worth, and our accomplishments is meaningless. All right, we're starting to run out of time here, so let's jump down to verses 13 to 15, back in 2 Ecclesiastes. Verse 13, Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceived that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. So these verses serve as a perfect example of what happens if we look at a view from a strictly secular point of view. Without completely understanding Solomon's mindset when he wrote this book, it would seem like there's a contradiction going on inside the Bible. Verse 13 starts with admitting that there is more gain in wisdom rather than in folly, and folly being defined by Brown Driver Briggs as a lack of good judgment or doing something stupid. So in verse 14, the teacher says, the wise person has eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. But 
The same event happens to them all, meaning we all die wise and foolish alike. In verse 15, he takes a very unbiblical turn and asks, why then have I been so very wise? Verse 16 says, how the wise dies just like the fool, implying why bother to try and live a lie, a wise, sorry, why bother try to live a wise life? Look at his conclusion in verse 17. So I hated life because what is done under the sun, S-U-N. What was done under the sun was grievous to me for all is vanity and a striving after the wind. The teacher is claiming a life lived apart from God is the same if you are striving after wisdom or indulging in foolishness. And he's right, in a life lived apart from God. But for those of us who know Jesus, who strive to live after the S-O-N, what does, God word, what does God's word say to us? Well, in Psalm 56, 13, a psalm of David, Solomon's father, Psalm 56, 13 says, For you have delivered my soul from death, yes, my feet from falling, that I may walk before God in the light of life. Psalm 119.105 teaches, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. The New Testament tells us in Matthew 7.24, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who's built his house on the rock. And this is what we are to do as Christ followers. Build our lives on the firm foundation, on the rock, on the teachings of Jesus Christ. We are not to be led by earthbound man's wisdom, but by heavenly God's wisdom and his teaching. Okay, I'm just going to send us on our way with a couple of concluding thoughts. The saddest part of Solomon's account in 1 Kings is that there is no record of Solomon ever repenting and returning to Yahweh. Now no man knows another man's heart, and I pray that for his sake Solomon did indeed repent and return to Yahweh. All I'm saying is, if it did happen, Scripture does not record it in 1 Kings. This book of Ecclesiastes is descriptive rather than prescriptive. This book is describing the struggles for meaning in life that Solomon was looking back on when he was not walking with Yahweh. This is not prescribing a way that we should be living as Christ followers. As the weeks go on, I will build on this thought. I will challenge you with this one last question. Who are you walking with? If you are a Christ follower, how's your walk going? Which has greater influence in your life, culture or God's word? If you're not yet walking with Jesus in your life, guiding you, then please come talk with me or one of the elders, and we can have a discussion about how that can look differently for you. If you have prayer needs, Dean and Gail are up front here, but know this Redemption Church, you are loved. Have a great week.